let me paint you a picture of my desk these days. Most mornings, I walk into my guest bedroom and sit down at a desk covered with day-old lattes, scattered meeting notes, and piles of books I've been meaning to read. The rest of my house is actually pretty tidy, but my workspace? To be honest, it's pretty similar to the one I had as a kid and when I worked at the office at Dropbox. It's messy. But weirdly enough, I'm realizing that since working from home, some of my best ideas have come from within the clutter. In fact, right now, I am recording this episode from my closet. There's actually a pile of dirty laundry at my feet. It's not an ideal work environment in the traditional sense. It's just not all that organized. But I've worked on this podcast in even stranger places, in my garage, and even in a hotel bunk bed with my computer stacked on a pile of vinyl records. I'm Tiffany Jones-Brown, and this is Remotely Curious, a podcast from Dropbox that asks all the questions about hybrid, remote, or as we call it, virtual-first work. Over the years, I've worked hard to become more organized in my personal life. And since we've all been spending a whole lot more time at home, we felt this extra pressure, I think, to keep a tidy workspace in our remote lives. Today on the show, a more unconventional approach to organization and why disorder might not be so bad. We'll find out why I feel inspired sitting at these less traditional desks. We'll touch on the physical, like how our space can influence the type of work we do. And we'll hear about ways to rework schedules with Dr. Kathleen Voss, a researcher who's published groundbreaking work on decisions. First, though, I wanted to talk to my colleague, Wes O'Hare. Wes is a designer at Dropbox and works remotely from his home in Southern California. We asked him to paint us a picture of where he does his best work, and he told us about his desk. He says it's fairly sparse, but that can change depending on the project. My desk may be covered in just a a bunch of random post-its and whatnot, or it might just be a little bit clean. And uh, for me, I'm not too dogmatic about it. And so I do think that being able to try a lot of new things means that you've got to be okay just sitting in a little bit of a mess, being able to sit with some ambiguity and being able just to be comfortable in that, I think is, is pretty key. Wes pauses for a second and grabs a little toy top to show us. Um, I don't know if you can see that. It's, a, it's just like a little top. And it spins on like a little glass plate. It's a fun little just like fidget toy, I guess, for myself. I've got like two of them. Sometimes like when you really need to get a task done, especially if it's a tough one, like you, you can't just like sit at a, at, a, at a screen and like sit at a dock and just like try and like hammer your way through it. You have to kind of just let your mind wander a little bit and then come back to it. And so I use these things to basically do that. Also for the top, it acts as a timer for me as well, because I know I can get a, right around about a six minute uh, spin on it. So when I'm doing sketching sessions, I'll usually do that instead of doing like a stopwatch on my phone. Wes is getting at something that researcher Dr. Kathleen Voss has actually studied, the connection between a, quote, messy space and our creative output. She's a psychologist and a professor of marketing at the Carlson School of Management at the University of Minnesota. 
She's published more than 250 papers. Some of them have been referenced by people like former President Obama and even Mark Zuckerberg. Essentially, she tries to figure out why we do what we do. Everything from why we make our Venmo payments public or private to why messiness may not be so bad. Her messiness and creativity study came out a decade ago, but in an era where remote work has made us feel disorganized in so many ways, I knew we could learn a lot from her. I asked her how she came up with the idea for that study in the first place. My colleagues and I started thinking that in the social sciences, almost nothing is sort of all good or, I guess, conversely, all bad. So we started thinking about how messiness, like the opposite of being tidy and clean, could actually bring about some benefits to the person, to society, and what are the outcomes that we might be looking at there that would that would kind of um, point to like a value or a benefit of messiness. And we hit upon this idea of creativity. And so what we did is we had our people come to the laboratory and some of them were put into a room that had um, pieces of paper and other office supplies very neatly arranged. And then another group was put in a room with papers strewn about everywhere, office supplies all over the place. And they gave both groups a task that called on their creativity. We gave them this kind of contrived setup, but a fun one where we said, there is a factory that makes ping pong balls and it has a surplus of ping pong balls. What else could they be doing? What else could they could consumers be doing? What could the factory be telling people to do with these ping pong balls? And we found that when our participants were in a laboratory that was messy and there was things strewn around, then they came up with more creative answers in this task compared to the people in the clean room. And we then had people who were not in the experiment look at their answers, knowing nothing else about the study, and just rate how creative they were. And non-creative answers would be, you could throw them at someone. (laughs) Creative answers were things such as, you could put hooks in them and use them for earrings. Not only were their ideas more creative on average, but people in messy rooms came up with more of them. They had almost five times the number of highly creative responses compared to their tidy room counterparts. I think I remember one of the not creative answers being use it for beer pong. And I was, as I was reading it, I was sitting in a very clean guest room, like the only clean room. And my mind immediately went to beer pong. (laughs) I was like, I "I know where I fit in your research, I guess. Um, (laughs) I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about why messiness might contribute to creativity or conversely, why cleanliness might lead to being more conventional. The reason that messiness might be related to creativity actually comes from what was known about why cleanliness and tidiness can be related to its outcomes. So in the behavioral sciences, like namely psychology, but also in anthropology and in religion and sociology, you see that there's a lot of um, associations with things being clean. It's interesting to think like, is it a function of the fact that tidiness and cleanliness has been associated with rule following, or is there something more fundamental about those arrangements? And that's an answer that I don't know. But generally, the idea is that there's a set of associations that go along with tidiness and neatness. People before us in the psychological literature have really looked at the psychological benefits of being in a tidy environment. 
And they, in a nutshell, sort of figured out that when people are in a tidy environment, tidy environments sort of inspire people to be rule followers, to um, stick to what is known, what is expected, stick to tradition, um, be conservative, like in the small C conservative sense, like meaning like don't try new things. And so my colleagues and I took that idea and flipped it on its head and said, but aren't there cases in which not following the rules and not sticking to norms is in fact the better thing to do, like this, the valuable thing to do? And we quickly hit upon this idea that creativity is one such outcome. And so that was sort of the aha moment for us where if cleanliness and tidiness leads to rule following and sticking to the norms and doing things the sort of expected way, then maybe messiness would inspire people to do things outside of what's expected and that could lead people to be innovative and creative. When our article came out, I wrote um, a summary of it for the New York Times on the Sunday uh, paper. They sometimes let scientists review their work and, and sort of talk about it from a societal angle. And I can't tell you how many emails I got afterwards from people in romantic partnerships or people who are household, you know, roommates in a household who said that you just saved our relationship. Because now I see that my partner's messiness isn't all bad or that there can be an upside to letting things go for a while and not be so militant about keeping everything clean. So that was sort of a fun uh, a, a fun and a little bit unexpected outcome of this research. And it's worth noting that this study's results have been confirmed by independent researchers at Northwestern University. They found that people in a messy room drew more creative pictures and were quicker to solve a challenging brain teaser puzzle than those in a tidy room. Well, I wanted to shift to remote work and ask, in what ways has working remotely maybe changed people's messiness or tidiness habits in your view? If you could summarize it from a behavioral standpoint, I think in some ways remote work has made the lines between what was expected from before versus now blurry. And so in a sense, remote work has made work messy, if you will, because before we had this clear delineation of you would, I mean, this prototypically, but you would get in your car, you would get on the bus and you would go to the workplace and you'd be there for a set amount of time and you would have the specific place that you sat. And that was consistent across time. And then you would, you know, come home and everything was much more compartmentalized and um, in its place. And now remote work, to the extent that it's new for people, um, it really has upended our sense of like, when are we working? When are we not working? And so at a meta level, remote work is very much related to messiness, at least insofar as this transition is going. Now, people will presumably get into a rhythm and then they'll create their own structure and boxes and etc. But for sure, for the first couple of years in which people are transitioning to remote work and then probably somewhat also um, remote, you know, doing lots of things at home, then that's going to be related to just this general sense of messiness. So that's kind of one way that I think about it. And then more at a more granular kind of physicality level, the idea of remote work has introduced more messiness into people's lives because not everyone had a dedicated space from which to do work prior to the pandemic. And so what does it mean to be doing remote work? Well, oftentimes it meant taking over an existing space. 
It could be carving out a little niche in your basement and putting up a, a table there. It could be taking over the kitchen table. It could be propping yourself up in the dining room. And so that messiness insofar as um, our understanding of space and then also in terms of just the um, equipment and materiality of what you need to bring. Like you need to bring stuff to this new um, office that you're setting up. And then um, some of those materials are just going to hang around. Like you're not going to put your laptop away into a different room every single time. So to me, the idea of remote work and messiness is connected on so many levels. And do you think the overarching increase in work-life messiness has impacted our creativity? Oh, for sure. The pandemic was a time a time of a lot of things, but you could really understand it as a time of innovation and creativity in people's everyday lives. And I mean, it doesn't you don't have to have big C creative creativity. You can have little C creativity infusing in your lives all kinds of ways in which you are coming up with even just the notion of a new way to get work done is itself a creative endeavor. But also like what does it mean, you know, what does it mean to work? What kind of work are we doing? I think the flexibility and adaptivity that people showed during the pandemic in their work lives, but also in their personal lives, is in part a reflection of how much our lives got messy during the pandemic, both again personally and also professionally. I really love that read. It's such a hopeful read, but also it feels like an accurate read. If I go back now and rethink about those first months and the way I was teaching my daughter and all of the new things we needed to do to our family life, it was a lot of little mini innovations. So I, I hadn't really thought of it that way. I appreciate that. So I want to talk a little bit about the practical issue of designing our spaces. Now that we're all working in our homes, are there any ways we might optimize our spaces for more creativity or more focus? Are there anything that you've found around that? If you can do it, you might want to consider leveraging the different spaces that you have at your disposal. So one thing that's so nice about remote work is that you're able to make use of the, the physicality of where you are in different ways, ways that you could never really do if you were in a, in a physical workplace. So you can't just take over someone else's desk, presumably, in most workplaces. Whereas at home, again, not, this isn't going to be true for everyone, but think about being able to move around to different places. Think about um, doing some of your like creative work where you're trying to brainstorm or come up with some ideations down in the basement, which you associate with a rec room where you associate with game playing, where you associate with entertainment. Maybe it's darker down there. Maybe it's more just comfy, messy down. Like maybe it's the place that you just expect like guests are not necessarily going to see. So there's just a lot more creature comforts there. By contrast, think about uh, dining rooms. Boy, the dining, my dining room, if it's like anyone else's, is not used that much. <laughs> and um and just, it's very neat and presentable. I don't think there's anything on the, the table in my dining room except for maybe a decorative plate. So think about, to the extent you can, like working there when it's time for focus work. And especially the kind of focus work where details are going to matter. Because then following the rules, sticking to order, sticking to convention, that's going to be what you want to lean into. There's a period of time in the pandemic when I was taking a creative writing course and I found that the only place I could write was in the 
garage, which is extremely messy because it's my husband's place. And uh, I would just go down there and hide in the corner around a big mess. And it did seem to help me focus weirdly, but focus on thinking creatively. This reminds me of my colleague Wes, who we heard from earlier. He told me about how he navigates his workspace. If I have to be, you know, on a call in a meeting, I'm definitely definitely at my desk. But if I need to go into like a more structured, um, you know, work time or, you know, I'm needing to design or read something, um, I'll basically just move my chair to like a different spot of this room. I think being in different corners helps because I'm not... I'm not tied down to the distractions, I guess, maybe of certain things. So like when I'm at my computer, you know, you might have Slack coming in, right? You might have, you know, notifications coming in um, as opposed to, you know, if I need to like really sit down and read like a specific like doc, let's say, um, then, you know, I could just bring that up on my iPad and sit like on a like the side of my desk yeah, it's just like a, another way to, you know, yeah, just turn off some of the noise in, in life. Kathleen added a few more thoughts. I mean, I think one piece of advice that I often have for people is uh, you don't want to be spending a lot of psychological energy being worried about about being messy. And knowing that messiness has benefits to it then can free up your mind to focus on the right things which from a psychological perspective, and we never studied this, but I wish we had, that might actually be one of the interesting mechanisms by which these effects occur, which is to say that if you feel like comfortable in a little bit of a messy environment, as opposed to worrying about it or having interfering thoughts about how you should really be cleaning up, then how much does that allow you to be free in terms of thinking about um, new connections, uh, novel avenues, and just, you know, d- various kinds of innovations. Yeah, that's just so interesting. It's like just choosing in one way what you're going to focus on and deciding to not spend those calories, it sounds like, on cleaning up all the time, which sounds good to me. This ties in well with other research Kathleen is known for on decision fatigue. The concept that the more decisions we have to make, the more exhausted we get, and the less likely we want to work through tough problems. You were one of the original researchers working on it, and I'm curious what got you interested in it. I came to the idea of decision fatigue through conversations with my dear friend and co-author on that paper, Jean Twingy. She was getting married, and she was going through the process of registering for her uh, wedding through the um, bridal registry, and she uh, she was lamenting like how challenging it was and what pattern did she want in her gravy boat. Uh, it was something she'd never considered. And she said, by the end, you could have talked me into anything. I, I just thought how interesting that was and what an astute observation that was. And so together with other collaborators, we embarked on this series of investigations to see like whether just the act of making decisions is something that that takes you something out of you. Like it, it's a process that makes you feel drained and tired and um, and psychologically exhausted. Our studies looked at whether making decisions then was related to people's willingness to do something hard or difficult 
in a subsequent period. So I'll give you an example of one of those studies. We would have people come into our laboratory, which we had outfitted to be like a store. And they had to go up to these tables with lots of products on them. The researchers asked them to make trivial decisions about the products. So I'll give you an example. We would have different colors of socks on the pairs of socks on the table. And we would say, which would you um, choose? A red pair versus a blue pair, a blue pair versus a white pair, a black pair versus a green pair, and so on. And we would have socks. We had scented candles. We had um, popular magazines. And we had them do a series of choices And then afterwards, depending on the study, we would have people do things um, that are challenging or unpleasant. So in one example, um, we would have people put their hands in cold water. And the cold water task is one that um, if you leave your hands in freezing cold water, it's a sign of like, can you withstand discomfort? And withstanding discomfort, well, it doesn't sound very nice as I'm saying it, but it's really kind of a hallmark of how people get through challenging things in life, right? Running a marathon, not eating cookies, et cetera. So we would have them do something like that, or we would have them um, work on challenging puzzles, um, and they we wanted to see how long that they could last at that too. So uh, to sum up, we found that when people had made decisions, then they were less willing and less able to do those hard tasks, the ones that were unpleasant or challenging, compared to people who had similar tasks but didn't make any decisions um, during them. So that kind of told us that there's something about decision-making that is psychologically unpleasant and leaves you kind of less able to do challenging tasks in the future. Hmm. How do you think remote work has impacted the number of decisions we're making every day? This is something I'm very interested in because one of the downsides of remote work is that it has upended our lives to a degree that we have to make new decisions, routines, and structures all over the place. So when to work? I mean, just the notion of when to work is now a decision. How about where to work? Do you try to carve out a space of your own? Do you try to crib in with to someone else's space? Um, what to work on as well, too, to the extent that you have less defined moment-to-moment tasks, then that means it's up to you to then make those executive decisions on what you're going to work on at any given moment. And just the whole idea of like not having routines Routines and habits are ways for people to um, not have to make quite as many decisions in their lives. And more broadly, remote work has upended routines and habits. So to the extent that those are not yet fully developed again, those mean the need for making decisions over and over and over again um, in our remote work lives. And more trivial decisions mean less energy when you have to make the important ones. That resonates with me a lot. Um, So I'm thinking, knowing that, I'm curious, what are some ways that a company like Dropbox could help prevent decision fatigue? I think from an organizational standpoint, um, I think companies are getting good at this, but introducing routine, once again, getting some more structure, once again, is going to be really beneficial. Of course, working from home and remote work is one of the benefits is its flexibility. So that's going to be an interesting 
balance as we kind of progress into remote work 2.0 in our lives here, but providing a little bit of structure as well for people to um, hang on to will be really important. So is it that, does that mean that every month, every morning, you know, has a certain ritual or, you know, like there's a, there's a note from your boss or what have you, but there's some, the regularity and rhythm to it. And that's going to be helpful in, in, in helping people establish those routines, thereby reducing um, the decisions they have to make. There has been a bevy of research in the financial sector and in the medical sectors. And what they have found is that when people are, when employees are making decisions and performing earlier in the day, they're best at their jobs and their performance and decision-making quality decreases as the day goes on. So one of the takeaways of this, as I work with companies and I talk with employees and employers, is how can you structure that workday so that you're leveraging the benefits of having that full capacity of decision-making abilities. At Dropbox, we've done a big push to reduce unnecessary meetings. One way is to try to limit them to what we call the three Ds, discussion, debate, and decision-making. I've noticed that when we streamline meetings in this way, I have a lot more room to think and be creative outside of meeting time. So I'll give you um, a story where I was talking with um, a company based here in Minneapolis. And as I talked to them about these decision fatigue findings, they all started looking around the table. It was a conference room at one another like there was some sort of like inside joke that I, you know, wasn't privy to. And and eventually one of them said, we're looking at each other because we start every day with a big meeting, like a big meeting with our different teams. And then they're dawning on them that that may not be the best use of their decision-making capacity because clearly, the I shouldn't say all meetings, but lots of meetings are really not the most... Um, you know, focus time for individuals. And so they started having a conversation right then about, you know, did we really need to have it in the mornings? Is there a way we could be doing it maybe like um, later in the morning, right before lunch when people are already waning um, quite a bit on that decision capacity. So those are the kind of structural things that I'm seeing people do, organizations, employers, and employees that are just thinking more thoughtfully about how do I structure my day and what are the decisions where it's important and necessary for me to put that capacity, limited capacity into. And one of the ones where um, like it, it would be fine if I had less decision-making capacity to do this task at this time. One of my favorite things that I read around your research was that it inspired Mark Zuckerberg to only wear the gray hoodies and Barack Obama to just have a blue and a dark suit. Should we all just switch to a capsule wardrobe? <laughs> I am still bold over that Mark Zuckerberg and President Obama said that this research was instructive for them. And I, in many ways, just admire their ability to lean into that. Um, The work uniform is something that I think people have cottoned on to. They think that that's a nice idea. And I'll be honest, I use it all the time. Typically, when you're making clothing choices, it's early in the morning, which is according to the research that's based on this decision fatigue idea, really like the most inopportune time for you to be using decision-making to think about your clothing choices. So for me, at least, that puts me on a good path already for the day where I'm able to just focus in straight away in the morning and then my whole rest of the day is just much more productive. And so I feel like to the extent that remote work has 
in some ways, opportunities for people to lean into the work uniform. Um, but also, I think, so presenting some challenges as well, too, where how much do you dress up for a Zoom um, meeting? Do you just dress up on your, you know, the part that's seen, et cetera? So I think the more that people can, like, uh, establish some regularities in what they're wearing, even if it's just athletes are wear, then I think that that'll be a good thing for their decision making. After hearing this, I tried it too. I lay my clothes out in advance the night before for a week and try to stick to basic leggings and button-up shirts. Some days I changed my mind last minute and put on a skirt or a pair of jeans, so I definitely didn't reach Obama-grade capsule wardrobe. But I did notice that choosing what to wear in advance made me feel less stressed throughout the first half of the day. Here are some other takeaways. Number one, let yourself get a little messy. Remote work has made our lives more unorganized, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. Research shows that a bit of messiness can spark innovation and creativity. Number two, switch up your workspace based on the kind of task you need to get done. If you're in creative mode, maybe head into your messy closet like I do. Or if you need to focus and cross things off your list, try the tidiest table you've got. And finally, Reduce or bundle the decisions you make throughout the day. This could mean prioritizing your decisions so you only focus on the big ones, blocking off time when you're most energized to make big decisions, or simply adding a bit of ritual and structure into your day. That's all for this week's episode. Thanks for listening. Remotely Curious is brought to you by Dropbox and our friends at Cosmic Standard. Our hardworking producers are Beauty Nazaro, Samaya Adams, Angela Johnston, and Asia Pilar Simpson. Our editor is Nina Gensler-Debs. Our technical director is Jacob Winnick, and our executive producer is Eliza Smith. Our designers are April Rosenstock, Feliz Camille Tolentino, Fanny Lore, Gabriela Tayenda, and Justin Tran. Our theme song is composed by Doug Stewart, and I'm your host, Tiffany Jones-Brown. For more tips on working remotely, check out the Dropbox Virtual First Toolkit at remotely-curious.com. Are you saying that I should stop nagging my super creative husband to clean up after himself? <laughs> I am saying that, yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>